1: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dana Mills, who is the author of Rosa Luxemburg, which is part of the Critical Lives Theory uh, series that is part of Reaction Books Limited. Um, this is a, uh, an interesting and, and fairly condensed volume, um, but it's easily readable um, and tells the story of Rosa Luxemburg's life personal, political, activist, and otherwise. Um, And I'm going to ask Diana to tell us a little bit about herself, how she came to this project, and uh, perhaps a
0: little bit about what she's doing now. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to to be here with you guys. Um, So I am half Israeli and half Welsh. My accent is unidentifiable, so I'm saying this to stop you guys trying to guess where I'm from. I'm speaking to you today from Tel Aviv, where I've just taken the post of Director of Foreign Relations and Development for Peace Now. Um, I've been an activist in the movement since I was 13. I was raised in Israel and I was a human rights and peace activist um, throughout my teenage years and and beyond that. And um, I went into academia in my 20s, pursued a PhD at Oxford and wrote three books. This is the second of them. And um, I've always been interested and have been troubled myself by the tension between theory and practice, which I think, um, for me, Rosa Luxemburg embodied in a really interesting way and also straddled it in different ways. Um, So that's kind of something that I've been engaged with in all my writing, and I think activism also. And um, I came to Rosa Luxemburg out of an interest in Jewish women who are skeptical or critical of the concept of the nation state. And, um, and as, as an Israeli who is advocating for Palestinian human rights, that's something that was very foundational in my own politics. And she's always been kind of around in the Israeli left. She's a hero for a lot of us. So I was drawn to her as part of a larger kind of group of women who I found interesting for myself. And very easily forgotten, um women on the left are generally forgotten, Jewish women are easily forgotten also, so this is not a good combination if you want to be remembered in history of political thought, so that's kind of how I got into her life and work really
1: and and I know because I was following you writing about her, um, you would post um, from various archives on Twitter. Um, and so I, I felt like I was I was a little bit part of the journey in, in your writing of this book just by following you. Um, but Rosa Luxemburg is a fascinating um, individual uh, in terms of her pursuit of higher education at a young age when women weren't necessarily going to university or receiving doctorates um, and also her life as a Jew in Poland. Um, and and can you talk a little bit about uh, her her life, her early life, but, you know, how her sort of experiences shaped her into the activist and thinker that she was.
0: So Rosa Luxemburg um, was the youngest daughter of a middle-class Jewish family in the small city of Zamroch, where she was educated by a combination of both Enlightenment thinking and the Haskalah movement, which is specifically a Jewish version of Enlightenment. And, um, what was going on politically, intellectually beyond that. So we're talking about, you know, the end of the 19th century, beginning of 20th century. That's kind of where she comes into the world. She was born in 1871. And when she was two, she was misdiagnosed with a hip disease, and she became disabled all her life. And I think one of the things that really drew me to her when I started researching her, is that I found out that she really loved walking, which is something that I love as well. I think I've always found I can think best when I walk and I live. I leave my phone at home and I kind of disengage and, and think. And I saw in her letters that that was a place where she was really able to connect with the world, but also for her, when she was walking was the only time that her disability became apparent. And nevertheless, she walked and she walked throughout her life, throughout the hardest periods of her life. So that's just like a little snippet of what kind of person she was and how difficult it was to to get her to stop doing anything. Um, she was incredibly clever. The combination of her being disabled, the youngest of the family, and incredibly clever made her the favourite of the family and very much nurtured. Um, she had older brothers and only one older sister who um, didn't marry until very late and um, Rosa was allowed to have the freedoms that Annie, who was Anna, sorry, the older sister, didn't have. So, um... She was already translating when she was a child. She was writing letters to her family at a very young age. Um, She wrote poetry in school. She wrote a poem against the Tsar as a young teenager that upset her teachers. So I could tell that she was already a very kind of rebellious teenager. And um, I would say the first thing that got her involved in politics was the question of nationalism in Poland and specifically sovereignty for Poland. And um, we need to go back a little bit in time and remember that during the first Internationale, which was um, founded in the time of one Karl Marx, the question of Polish nationalism was a very foundational question for leftists all around the world. And Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels themselves saw Polish nationalism as a way to bring down the Russian Empire, which was indeed the governing force in Rosa's life. So Rosa was a citizen of the Russian Empire herself. And um, Marx and Engels and many around them, actually the majority of the left, um, saw Polish nationalism as a really important thing to advocate for. And indeed, many um, people around Rosa in her time also advocated for Polish nationalism for left and right. But Rosa, from a very young age, dissented against that. And she saw nationalism in and of itself as a dangerous um, element. And she advocated for internationalism, although... Again, that was against the interests of her own people. And one thing that I found out that I think is really important to understand her is that um, she joined a polit- political movement that was against Polish nationalism. And when she was a young teenager, she saw the leaders of this movement being executed for what they thought. And Rosa, later in her life, in 1917, she will write a pamphlet called The Russian Revolution, in which she will write one of the most famous quotes, that is, freedom is always and exclusively the freedom to think differently. And she was really an advocate of freedom of thinking and speech from the left, something that, dare I say, we need to remember now more than ever. And um, her youth as a Polish anti-nationalist, I would say not only internationalist, but anti-nationalist, really brought her to understand that. I think there's something really foundational when you come into politics by seeing leaders of something you believe in pay in their life. Um, something that tragically she will do herself also. Um, So that's something that was really, really important for her thinking. Uh, She was incredibly talented and pursued a PhD in economics where in the University of Zurich, she couldn't go into higher education in Poland. She was already known for her rebellious views and um, she basically escaped to Switzerland and enrolled in the University of Zurich where the first woman was admitted at In 1967, Rosa graduated in in 1897, so only 30 years after the first woman ever was admitted into the university. And her professor already said she was a thorough Marxist when she came to me. She was completely self-educated in that way, and the top of the class. And she was denied one of the distinctions that she was supposed to be awarded because she was a woman. And of course, the fact that she was a Jewish woman didn't help either. So she had all these things riding against her. And I think... One other thing that drew me to her very early on is that I saw she really found joy in thinking in analytical problem solving, which is as a self proclaimed nerd I really identified with this kind of this enjoyment of immersion in just understanding how to to disengage tensions and to work through them, which of course you know the core of Marxist thinking is through dialectics she was the foremost dialectician of her time, which was above and beyond everyone else who worked at her time. Um, And this really drew her to writing and thinking, but she also had a huge passion for the world, huge understanding of what injustice means for people on the ground. So her thinking and writing was never just for her own intellectual pleasure, but for really making the world better for everyone. So these are kind of her first, I would say her younger years up till late 20s, when she was awarded a PhD.
1: And, and one of the things you say in the, in the introduction, and and the book is, is about a lot of her written work, but also her biographical experiences. Um, But one of the things you say is that you want this to be a feminist discussion um, of Rosa Luxemburg, um, because usually, um, men's work is intellectual work is discussed and women's biographies are discussed. Um, And you do this uh, magical thing in the book of weaving them together so wonderfully. Uh, Can you talk about the process for you to sort of pull these, these threads together so that we see the whole person
0: also? Thank you. Yes. I mean, the question of Rosa Luxemburg and feminism itself is complicated and interesting. And I can go into that later, but for me, I am a feminist, and I'm interested in human rights, and I guess that motivates everything I do. And I think one thing that I realized while writing the book and looking into feminists of her time, her time, the Second International, which is 1889 till the First World War, really, um, is the time before women get the vote. It's a time when really we're, we're at the crux of um, social democracy as we know it today, but not yet. So women are not yet part of the body politic but also a lot of other people aren't, of course, because working class people aren't part of the vote. And we're still talking about imperialism and a lot of other phenomena that she was um, heavily engaged with. So this is a time in which the question of equality in law versus in substance really is at the heart of of what people are thinking about. And I found that more than 100 years later, I started writing the book in earnest more or less 100 years after she was murdered. Actually, probably before, but... The kind of very rigorous process of writing I found that our conception of feminism felt very narrow to me because our conception of feminism was very white middle-class neoliberal only discussion of law only discussion of of rights and very little in terms of um inequality in a deeper way which could be economic and um, racial a lot of other variants that was like no no, no but we have to talk about women and um I actually went through a huge arc myself writing the book because I kind of started with thinking, okay, this is definitely going to be a feminist book because it's a book about a woman who lived in unequal times and still did what she wanted, which is, you know, that's a legible feminist viewpoint. But it became something much more for me because it was about what can feminism mean for us today that we've completely lost. And there's something really interesting about women who didn't have the rights that we take for granted today and still fought for something larger. So Rosa Luxemburg was one of the first people Within Marxism itself, to dissent against imperialism, to talk about why exploitation of people around the world is unjust and is part of injustice within her own nation state, and she writes about, of course, the connection between women's suffrage and the working class struggle, and the fact that she's not advocating for women's suffrage, but she's advocating for universal suffrage, which is a very different thing. So there was something really interesting about being able to go back and look at where the struggle really went one way and could have gone another and what that does for us as feminists in the 21st century. So I think for me, she was a way to reclaim feminism, but of a different kind of feminism. I felt much more at home with than the kind of popular mainstream um, cultural feminism. And I should say, just to wrap this up, that um we all I I'm I'm a collectivist at heart. I believe that we work together. We're not, you know, we don't live alone. And of course, I relied on much work of, of Luxembourg scholars who came before me. Um, but I was also really influenced by contemporary feminist socialist work. And I should say specifically, I'm very much indebted to the work of Rachel Holmes, who writes on Eleanor Marx and Sylvia Pankhurst, two of Rosa's contemporaries and friends who influenced her and were influenced by her. And um, there's other great socialist feminist work right now, um, Lola Ulifemi, and of course the greats such as Angela Davis, who has just, I saw, been kicked out for dissenting against um, various human rights infringement as we speak today, just today, Um, and other women who basically insist on equality in a broader sense and not just women's rights. So I think for me it was a way to affirm where feminism can go that we don't we didn't even let ourselves try.
1: And 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 you're right in terms of you know this idea of is it going to be only the laws that are applied and constructed or is this going to be a, a movement? Um, and I think you know, in in the last couple of years, in in fact, we've seen a sort of re engagement with movement feminism um, that is also about broader equal rights for everybody, um, and the you know the folding together, at least in the United States, with the women's move, women's march, and Black Lives Matter, and so forth, um, but. You you also have spent a lot of time with Eleanor Marx. I have. Um, I, know. <laughs> I, I, I know, and and so in in this context, you, you also note that um, Luxembourg is um, is also a critic of some of the Marx canon um, in her work, um, and and this is the Karl Marx canon, um, and and so can you explain? to some degree, how that sort of operated, particularly at the time she's writing, she's working in the international, um, and she's, you know, she's, she's working with different advocacy groups. Um, But, but this criticism, can, can you explain a little bit about that?
0: So one of her comrades and colleagues, Franz Mehring, called her the best reign after Marx. This is a short version of the full quote, but it was basically saying she is the most rigorous brain in Marxism still, since Marx. I would say that Eleanor Marx was probably the best brain after Marx, and then we had Rosa Luxemburg, so there's a nice genealogy there. Um, there's A few things to note when we consider her reading of Marx. First of all, she's working in a very different period. So Marx dies in 1883. Um, she comes into politics really at the late 80s, um, 90s of the 19th century, of course, and um, she sees a lot of phenomena that he only begins to see unraveling and um, German socialism specifically, which is where he came from, and then obviously escaped, became a refugee in Belgium, then in France, then comes to England and basically stays there, um, is where she escapes to as a political refugee. So there's a nice continuity there between them. But German socialism goes through a huge Process So in the 1870s, the Socialist Party, the SPD, which is where she will spend all her working life, really, um, was illegal. It was, you know, there were anti-socialist laws, people had to meet in hiding. And um, it was really a subversive thing to be a socialist. By the time she gets to Germany, the SPD is the largest party in the Internationale. International was an organization based on parties, socialist parties from around the world, and the SPD was the largest. And by the time she reaches really the prime of her political career, the SPD is the most powerful party in the German Reichstag. So um, she goes from a position of being an, a, basically a dissenter outside of the entire political system to being a dissenter within a party that will be close to power and then towards the end of her life will be in power. So it's a very different political position to, to write from and to advocate from. Whereas Karl Marx, it should be noted, was never involved directly in politics. So Eleanor Marx was the political activist, really. She was, Rachel oh. Holmes says, the practice to her father's theory. So there's a very big difference between how you write and how you advocate, whether you are part of a party and you have to criticize speeches and and movements, etc., or whether you're writing your great magnum opus which will then become a canon. You don't even know it yet. Having said all of that, um, Luxembourg engages one point that Marx starts with and then she expounds and makes a very important uh, political point. I think one of the unique things about her is that she's able to seamlessly connect ideological talking points to um, intellectual complexities. Again, there's never... The disengagement with the joy of thinking. She was a very deep thinker, and I think we need to we need to bring her back to syllabi. I hope that people who are listening to this in political science don't just teach her because she was a woman and a lefty teacher because she's writing really great stuff, and she writes no less rigorous than many of the people we see as canon today. And um, in she was also a very talented teacher. I should say she taught in a trade union school, and she was the most popular teacher. She was the only woman on the faculty. And when she became too left-wing for the faculty, they tried to get her um to to fire her. But she was so popular that the students said, no, 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 we can't have that happen. So and um, there was also that part of her thinking. But when she was in the trade union school is really when she sharpens her thinking, which I think for a lot of us we know that we do our best thinking when we're teaching a module or we're teaching a course about something that we engage with. And in the late 19, the first decade of the 1900s, really, um, she starts developing her thinking of imperialism, which at that time was really being a left wing, Mm -hmm. radical position, even within the SPD, most people were very complacent with imperialism Mm -hmm. and said, you know, socialism is great, we need to advocate for socialism within our body politic, what's going on across the oceans is none of our business for now. But I think she had the talent and really both the heart and mind to see the connection between what was going on in Germany's colonies and, of course, in other colonialist projects around the world and to understand how that implicates the possibility or not to advocate for socialism in Germany. And through her entire career, but really at that period, she starts bringing forward a critique of Marx's Volume 2 of Capital, where he also writes about imperialism. You know, it's, Marx is probably the first theorist of globalization. And she really expands that, and she really looks at how having an imperialist system sustains capitalism. So she basically pushes the, the point that the reason that revolution hasn't happened yet, that's one of the questions that all economists and she are concerned with, is the fact that exploitation is taking place just across the ocean. So it's not that... We're, we're going towards more equal times, but just that exploitation is becoming invisible to the political forces in which he's engaged. Um, and I have to say, I found that an incredibly timely intervention. You know, when we look at how economics is practiced today with all sorts of agreements that make um, countries feel good about themselves, but where some people will be working for 12 or 14 hours in sweatshops and the others will have new laptops and iPhones. You know, there's a very direct link that starts when when she, when she basically talks about what is happening in Germany's colonies while she's trying to create, you know, a revolutionary movement of Germany of her time to us wondering why aren't we no, not progressing faster towards more equality while we're all consuming Things we don't need produced by mass um, structures that are unjust, and we know that. You know, we have much more information than she had in her time, and um, we're not really doing anything about it. So I think you know, her critique and accumulation of capital—it um, has been falsified economically. You know, I'm not going to go into that, but there's a whole kind of discussion of the economics of that, saying that capitalism needs markets to expand into, but the logic is there. The logic has sadly carried through to our times
1: i just talked to um ben McKean mm. a couple of weeks ago about his new book disorienting neoliberalism which is very much the same kind of argument in terms of the invisibility of you know the the production side um and also you know, as i said to him recently um with the the boat stuck in the suez canal the the sort of you know sort of infrastructure of delivery and supply chains um that we never see right we never see it in, in unless something like that happens yeah <laughs> um <laughs> so Rosa Luxemburg is a sort of early critic of neoliberalism.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's a whole, there are a lot of things that came out of the book that I haven't pursued yet. And I probably will at some point, but I think there definitely is a critique there of neoliberalism. And I think there's a critique of the invisibility of exploitation structures and the ability of us. And I mean, she's as rigorous on that inside you know, her nation state, when she talks about how, you know, again, the feminist question is really important here because she is, she never joins bourgeoisie feminism. She never goes like, you know, women have to have the vote. But she makes a very specific claim. In 1912, she writes about, um, it's called, it's basically a text that talks about women's suffrage and class struggle called that also. And she basically says, only working class women are denied the vote because they are the last bulwark against democracy, which is a really important claim. And I mean, When we look at who are the people who are paying the heaviest price for any situations of exploitation, whether it's COVID, where we know very well that women from working class backgrounds, from exploited um, backgrounds, from racialized um, contexts, are the ones who are bearing the brunt of this pandemic, um, to any other, if you look at any kind of division of labor, any kind of research into power structures, it is working women who are paying the price. And it is basically if working women would actually be able to influence power structures, we would have something close to an equal democracy. So she was very much ahead of her time then, I think, in understanding that neoliberalism can only be critiqued from the position of those most um, disenfranchised by it. I think that... um, she was probably much more cynical than we are in a very good way, in a very healthy way towards uh, processes that appease and might look and feel good and um, create this kind of facade of justice. So I think she was also an early critic of you know, what we would see now as NGO work and um, human rights advocacy that isn't really rooted in creating equal material conditions, anything that isn't equal material conditions for her. Should, we shouldn't be engaged with, so I think again, it's really interesting looking at a lot of initiatives that might make feel people feel very good but actually have very little traction in in others' material lives
1: um and and you you are almost writing a kind of a mystery um in the way that you sort of again um I don't want to use this word inappropriately but tease at her her untimely murder. Um, from the very beginning of, of the way that you're writing about her, her personal and political arc. Um, can you explain a little bit about what happened that, that ended her life in the, in the violent way in which
0: it was in fact ended? So, um, I have to say, so I'm going to say something a little bit about my process and why wrote the way I did, and then I'll talk about the actual circumstances. I think from the beginning, when I realized that she was here to stay with me, I think our subjects very much choose us. It's not like one day I woke up and I thought I'm going to write about Rosa, but I felt she was becoming more and more present in my life, and then it, it was kind of inevitable after a while. Um, and I realized that the murder is something I have to, to, to come to terms with. Um, she was murdered at the age of 47 after... Just being released less than six months earlier from prison for being for dissenting against the first world war, and she was murdered by a coalition of proto fascist militias that will later be forces enabling hitler to gain power and It should be said centrist forces from her own party from the s p d who were complacent and um basically pushed along the murder. This is information that only became apparent when I was researching the book. And it's still, you know, in Germany, you still can't talk about it openly. The SPD is the sister party of the Labour Party in Britain, and it's a very respectable um, party still. So you can't really go to a conference and say, yes, but you helped murder her. Um, It was still very volatile when I was researching the book, which was, again, something for me to think about. And, you know, when when you have my previous subject on whom we talked also in this podcast was Isadora Duncan, who also had an untimely and tragic death. So I already kind of knew that that bears a certain responsibility for myself as a writer, that I need to to think about how to present that to the reader. And I think a lot of writing on her, and I'm trying to be very careful with my words, but writing of certain genres of feminism that don't come from economic standpoints, that looked at her as a tragic victim, as, you know, senseless murder, violence of men. There's all been all sorts of readings of her that I found very anger-making. First of all, because she was very clear about the fact that she was going to get murdered. I think, you know, it was clear to me that from about three months prior to her murder, she is basically on guard. She lives in precarious um, residence, and she escapes one day to day. And I was like, this is the actions of someone who knows that their life is coming to an end. She has no no illusions about that. And that's one of her letters she writes, I want, to, I want to die on my guard. And I completely understand that. I think that was her entire life. She saw things were getting worse. I think the other thing that for perhaps for you and I is really important here is to understand that most of her close comrades were Jews and were murdered in various stages, either in the camps or in the rising of Hitler to power. So being both communist and Jews, they were going towards that stage. So it became clear to me that hadn't she been murdered, she would have ended up in the way that a lot of our ancestors had. So this is a little bit about my position towards the murder, which I really didn't want her to be a tragic victim because she was never a victim you know she was um she was a victim of violence yes but she was also very much the author of her own story and she went towards i think it's clear that had she wanted to escape, probably she could have done that. She was famous enough, she had ways out of Germany, had she didn't care and said, you know, I just I want to live my life comfortably on a farm in Poland or something. You know, she has she has, she has these kind of asides in her letters saying, oh, I wish I could just stay in a small farm and raise sheep. And, you know. and you're like, yeah, but you don't really want to do that because like two sentences later, you're picking a fight with Lenin. So that's what really where you're going with with that thinking. And I think it's really important that we understand that people make... Choices. they can be victims of violence, but they also make very informed choices about their lives. And I think it really struck me that she was really an informed author of her life story in a way that really struck me that is very unusual even for us today, that um, a lot of people kind of narrate their lives as circumstantial or being lucky or privileged uh, or, you know, all the gratitude discourse that we know is like, oh, I'm so grateful, I, I fell to this position. She really knew what she was doing. She was when she was in her teens, she wanted to get a PhD in economics, so she went and got a PhD in economics. She wanted to get involved with the SPD, she went and got involved with the SPD. She wanted to write a critique of Marx, she went and wrote a critique of Marx. And there was something about that that I thought, you know, she's a woman who wrote her own story. You know, I'm just there to echo what she already did. So um her death was grueling. It was a really big crisis internationally, you know, something that really shook socialists around the world. And I think really shown, for me, it, it showed the beginning of the demise of German, German democracy into what we know happened afterwards. So there's a very direct line between those soldiers who go and kill her in the middle of the night by the Lundberg canal to proto-fascists taking Jews out of their houses and deporting them and nothing happens. And um Yeah, the question of her being a victim, I think, is something that troubled me. I have to say in that context that she also lived through a very abusive relationship with her first lover and comrade, um, Leo Jorgicat. who, at some point it became clear to me really scared her. She was a woman who didn't get scared easily, but she got a gun to defend herself. And he stole the key to her flat and didn't want to return it. And, you know, this is what we know now as an abusive, toxic relationship. And she carried on her political work, but there was clearly, you know, it clearly affected her very deeply. So I think, again, there's something about the complexity of women's psyches that was really something that I had to engage with. And the fact that you can be, you know, this rebellious spirit and critique Marx and take all the lefties of your generation and still be scared to walk home because your abusive partner has a key to your flat. And I think we need to really be more subtle on how we discuss violence against women and how we engage with um, these kind of relationships and not think, you know, victim, vulnerable, we need to protect X or someone who is powerful and a leader and is immune to all of that, but really understand the complexity of what, you know, living in a capitalist patriarchy means for women in their everyday
1: yeah, I, I and and again I as you were sort of describing you're thinking about how she authored her own life um including understanding that um she was probably walking towards her own death um mm. in part because of some of her actions and in part because of she's understanding what the times and the culture and the politics are around her. She fa- she sounds a little bit like our friend Socrates. Um and and because, um, yeah. again, Socrates could have escaped, right? Crito comes to him with a bunch of cash and says, like, we, we can get out of here. Um, but she also doesn't want to necessarily go live on that farm in yeah. Poland, as yeah. she muses about, but really doesn't want to do it. Yeah.
0: She <laughs> wants to go and argue with Lenin. I mean, that's fascinating. No one has ever asked me about Socrates. I have to think about that. But I'm going to steal that and say that another thing that she posed me with is a question between of the relationship between ethics and politics, which I think we take fairly lightly today and she never did. And um, she really thought about justice long and hard, although she was a political and economic thinker. And she kind of managed to intertwine sort of thinking about the relationship between the past and the future in a really subtle way that our friend John Rawls, I think, failed with, sorry all Rawlsians listen, listening to the podcast, sorry to disappoint you. Um, no, but I mean, she she thought about what our actions in the present would mean to a future we do not yet know. And she lived really walking towards a day she never knew what would look like. and She had this kind of open mind and open heart towards it, which I found really astounding, engaging with her. So I think when we talk about the relationship between ethics and politics and how our political actions might create any image of justice um, and what that might look like. What would it be the day after the revolution? She really was one of the most important thinkers of that. And she was really undercredited for that. You know, she she's often criticized for something that she actually wrote about. I should say in this context, I'm going to hijack that and say that I'm also on the board of the Rosa Luxembourg complete works that is published by Verso. And one thing that we know is that we really don't know enough about her actual writing. So the book, my my biography, is an introduction to some of her core texts. But we keep discovering texts and we keep translating texts. She wrote in several languages. She was proficient in Yiddish, in Polish. Um, And the richness of her thought is really astounding, you know, every so often we find something new that completely shakes what we think of her her writing. So there's been a lot of very kind of strong-headed, I should say in parenthesis, men who said, oh, she never wrote about X or she never wrote about Y and then magically a text transpires that's is exactly about that. So, you know, for years she's been critiqued for not writing about the day after the revolution, but I think that's actually one of her most interesting and significant contributions to social thought, that she really did think about that a lot. And interestingly, um, like her friend and comrade, Sylvia Pankhurst, there's a fantastic new Rachel Holmes book about her. Um, they were both incarcerated for a long time of their lives, and I think for both of them, being in prison was really transformative. And there's the a few texts that she writes towards the end of prison time, where she already knows that she's going to be released. Again, it's kind of astounding because she kind of sees where political forces are going and she knows, you know, it's a matter of time until she'll be released. And she kind of talks about, I promised my poor prostitutes in prison that I will do things to help them. And I think she really understands um, kind of how, again, oppressive forces work differently on people during incarceration. Um, She wrote very early on against, against the death penalty. Again, kind of little discussed element of her work. And she really understood what incarceration does to the psyche. And she becomes much more aware of what we would call now structural oppression, how kind of different forces put us in different places in society when she is imprisoned. So I think, you know, we we can also sort of think about, you know, I was talking earlier about Angela Davis, who of course also connects her firsthand experiences to her political theory. Um, There's something there, you know, women who spend time in prison and understand that torture and abuse and taking away women's last dignity is really where you meet the state when you realize that the state is the first thing we need to overthrow in order to move forward towards a better world. So I think um, in terms of ethics, also, it's something that really troubled her when she was in prison and when she was kind of faced with these existential questions.
1: And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the the sort of the series that this book is also mm. a part of, as you are also talking about how you are on the board of the Rosa Luxemburg um, sort of collected works. Yeah. Um, this is, this is from reaction books yeah. um, which is a UK company and the, your book was published in 2020, but in, in looking at it, there are hundreds or yeah. it seems like hundreds of, other works like this can you talk a little bit about this critical lives theory and and how you
0: sort of got this into the in the process with them um so i should say first of all one of the main influences on the book was my editor viviane constantinopoulos who is a wonderful feminist thinker writer who really kind of was a wonderful conversation to have conversation to have while i was writing the book um the idea of critical lives is to give uh, a public so this is like undergraduates or general public who is interested in intellectual ideas, history, etc, a very brief introduction into a thinker or an artist or someone who is of note. And the idea is to create a balance between life and work. So to have an introduction to someone's work while giving context of life. And I have to say, when I started out, it sounded like a great idea to me. Then I realized how hard it was. It was one of the hardest things I wrote. I have to say, because just to get the balance somewhere near, I don't think there's a right balance, but to get it somewhere near appropriate and still to still to get the reader interested because I think especially with Luxembourg, she is such an interesting woman. She is just like everything she does is fascinating as and is timely and is exciting to engage. But to make that into something that is exciting to the reader is a different thing. It's a different kind of element of writing. So I think for me, the question was how to transfer her energy and how she saw herself and how she saw the world into something that would be readable and interesting to a 21st century reader. And I think I especially thought of readers who might not come from a socialist background, because I think, you know, People came from socialism already knew what they thought about her. And I had a lot of sort of discussions and going back to her debate with Lenin or a lot of her revisionism debate with Edward Bernstein, which is fine. You know, if if you're part and parcel of that history, that's all right. But I have to say, I I had to remember a few days when I was sitting and thinking with myself and especially thinking of the fact that, like many of her contemporaries, she taught in a working class school. And she taught people who had no access to education and had no background of the theories that she taught. And she was an astounding teacher. (coughs) She was really able to disengage ideas into questions. And she taught in... Interesting, you asked me about Socrates because she taught in dialectics. She asked questions and that's how she transferred the information. So um, I thought about the fact that if she was able to bring these complex ideas to people who had no access to education of her time, I have no excuse not to simplify them for readers of our time, who have much more access, you know, with the internet, everyone can go online and read a bit of, like, introduction to Marxist thought. So my audience was far less those who are already kind of engaged and had you know, very opinionated views of who she was and what she did and didn't do. And of course, you know, there's a place for that. And I'm, you know, she needs a bigger biography. I don't know if I'm the person to write or someone else, the kind of 500-page authoritative biography that will take all the debates into account and make the kind of complete context. But for now, she just needed an introduction into people who are interested in radicals, who are interested in questions of human rights, who are interested in questions of economic justice. And, you know, when I was writing the book, on the one hand, as you mentioned earlier, we had Women March movement. Um, It was before the breakout of Black Lives Matter. The book was out since. But there was already, obviously, still debates around racial injustice and imperialism in the US, in the UK. Um, In the UK, we had the Brexit debate, and we had kind of moved towards more nationalism globally. And... On the other hand, you had huge radicalization of young people. So when I was writing the book, you had Bernie Sanders in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and you had a mass of younger people who started talking about socialism and started engaging with ideas of really revolution and how to make the world better for everyone and not just for chosen few. So I felt there was a kind of an intellectual energy that I could really ride on as as a writer and sort of channel into my thinking and, you know, taking into account that I I want to write for the 17 to 19-year-old who might be a Sanders or Corbyn fan and might not know who she was, but think, oh, you know, this is a Jewish woman who lived in the 1890s and um, maybe she's interesting. I'm kind of interested in socialism. So that was kind of my imagined perfect reader rather than, you know, the scholar who was already engaged in her debate with Bernstein and had fully formed opinions. And I have to say, I I think, you know, writing the book really shifted myself as an academic, because, as you probably know, I I always had very short patience for debates that had no traction in the real world. And I mean, history is really very important, and we need to insist on facts, especially in a post-truth era. But I think there's a lot of indulgence and privilege in the way that we do intellectual work today in academia. And we forget who is our audience. We forget that we're talking to young kids who could really be influenced by our ideas. And we're talking to a lot of people who are not in our classrooms, but still would benefit from the knowledge that we carry. And I think she really rem- remind me, reminded me of that and reminded me of being mindful of that and um, not to get too complacent in discourses that might make me feel intelligent in using big words that I know and not me- not everyone else knows but would make very little difference to how the world would look the following day. So I think in terms of my position, that was it in terms of the series. I think, you know, I do urge the listeners to look at um, the series. There's a huge variety there of thinkers, artists, you know, there's probably like every person you like is on that series. And, They're very meticulously edited and presented and just like a really wonderful way to engage with someone without having to buy the 500 page biography, which, let's be honest, we don't always have time to read. or We can't afford, which is also really important. These are sort of fairly cheap books. Um, And just to get an introduction that is rigorous, scholarly, but not elitist
1: and and i like the fact that there are also images throughout the yeah. book of her um and some of her comrades um and so you you sort of can see her sort of growing up um and and you have a picture in your mind's eye of this very small um as as you note and as other people comment <laughs> that that her her small stature included a lot of um revolutionary fervor Um, and, and so it's, it's a lovely book to read. Um, and so I know that you're not in an academic setting, but are you writing another book? Are you working on something else now?
0: Yes. I mean, I'm kind of going back. So Rosa came out of, um, larger interest in Jewish women in the nation state, and um, I'm kind of going back and sort of thinking about that larger question, which I think is more urgent than ever. You know, we're talking just over a week after the Israeli election in which a Jewish fascist terrorist has been elected to the Knesset. This is a man who has in his living room a photo of um, the terrorist who killed 29 Palestinians in Hebron in the 90s. And he is now a member of Knesset. It's Itamar ben gvir And the question of nationalism is really burning here and is basically the reason why I returned the question of where do we stand opposite nationalism and what is our respons- responsibility of opposite nationalism. And you know, many women I admire and I'm working with here have been fierce critics of where Jewish nationalism can lead us and saying, okay, we know Jews need an Asian state. We know where we ended up in the 1940s, but who is paying the price for this nationalistic wave? So I'm now sort of going back to this larger project and uh, in my free time, haha, um, (laughs) I'm kind of thinking about that deeper question. I'm sure, you know, there will be a book that comes out of it. When is, you know, the question of when that happens is how bad will Israeli politics go? So, you know, watch this space and you can guess when I'm writing. Um, But there will be something that comes out of that. And I think, again, it's really interesting to note that um, Jewish women have really been part of revolutionary movements all around the world. So when I was researching Rosa, Ruth First, who is a great anti-apartheid radical in South Africa, basically said that Rosa Luxemburg was the first person to understood the South African War. At that time, it was called the Boer War, but it is now called the South African War of the early 1900s. She was the first person to understand the imperialist forces that happened before that. Ruth First herself was assassinated at a young age and paid the price for her opinions. So there's really, um, I think, strong genealogy there of Jewish women who speak out, sometimes pay a very heavy price. Um, Sometimes, you know, not all of my Jewish uh, critics of nationalism died in a tragic death, but many of them had difficult lives, nevertheless. nevertheless, Being a radical woman is never an easy path to tread. Um, But the intellectual integrity uh, is there. And I think it's something that fascinates me and has been supportive of me and um, in my own political interests. So I think that's something that is coming together. And I think, you know, I'm still engaging with Rose and I'm really grateful that she chose me and that she came to hang out with me for a while. And she's still here, you know, she's very nice because she's still very much present in my life. And I often sort of find some of her quotes coming back to my mind in random moments. And um, she is incredibly timely in all sorts of things that happen in the world. I'm like, oh, what would she have said of that? How should she understand that? You know, we're talking about um, vaccine inequality and the fact that the developed world basically hoarded vaccines. You know, I'm sitting in Israel where we are the first country really to achieve herd immunity, whereas in the occupied territories, you know, the rate of illness is just going up and up. She was the first person to talk about imperialism in that way that you can't disconnect right like you can't ignore the effects that's going on across the oceans so i guess she's also here to stay and probably there's going to be some other stuff that comes out of that well i
1: hope when this book about the involvement of jewish women in anti-nationalism um comes comes forward and is published um that you will come back on the new books in political science podcast and talk to me about it i would love that um, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today, Dana, about Rosa Luxemburg, Critical Lives. This is published by Reaction Books um, in 2020. I assume it's available from Reaction Books website and yeah. other places that one buys books. Um, and I really appreciate our
0: conversation about Rosa Luxemburg. Thank you very much for having in for this wonderful conversation.